You are listening to The Global Current from Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Each week, we break down and discuss a different topic in global affairs. This week, we have the first installment of our new Deep Dive episodes, in which we have a longer discussion with experts on global issues. I'm Eric Bunce, and thank you for tuning in. Since 2014, Yemen has been engaged in a brutal civil war. Iranian-backed Houthi fighters have been battling against the Sunni government, itself supported by a coalition of Saudi-led Gulf states that, until recently, enjoyed U.S. logistical and intelligence support. The conflict is further complicated by the involvement of various terrorist groups. Over the past nearly seven years, the war has evolved into one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. According to the United Nations, 24 million Yemenis, more than 80% of the population, are in need of assistance. Joining me today to talk about this conflict and the road to peace are two experts. Dr. Joseph Huddleston is a professor here at Seton Hall who specializes in diplomacy by rebel groups and dynamics in interstate conflict. Professor Huddleston, hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. And we are also lucky to have Professor David Wood, who is an expert on conflict resolution and peace building. He has spent 14 years working on resolving conflicts throughout the world. Hi, Professor. Good to be here and good to see you both. Thanks for coming on the show. This conflict began, at least officially, in 2014. So, uh, Professor Huddleston, what happened then or before then to to kickstart this conflict? I would want to go back to 2011 when the mm-hmm. during the Arab Spring, what we call the Arab Spring, there were significant protests happening in Yemen at that point as well. Um, but the conflict was mostly triggered by a 2015 by the 2015 National Dialogue Conference, um, which was viewed by a number of groups as as having an unfair settlement. It's a really complex conflict, but something uh, uh, a way to kind of simplify the way you think about it is think about the conflict as operating on sort of three dimensions. First, there's this sort of nationwide dimension of a competition for national political authority between what we call the internationally recognized government, which Mm -hmm. is currently centered in Aden, and the de facto authorities in the northwestern part of the country, um, kind of centered around the movement of Ansar Allah, which you just Mm -hmm. just called the, the Houthis there. Um, second, there's a conflict over whether there should be greater autonomy in parts of the, the country. There's a group called the Southern Transitional Council that is pushing for separation and pushing to have the country split into two countries. And then finally, in a lot of conflicts like this, you see local groups fighting to have more local autonomy and kind of resisting centralized the centralized government and asserting any kind of authority. Right, so you have several dimensions of conflict kind of going on at the same time, and that's part of what's made it so ugly. And I also I understand that there are some there's some terrorist activity involved in the conflict as well. There is. This is common in just about any protracted social conflict. You'll see groups deciding, you know, electing to use terrorism as as one of their tactics. I teach classes on terrorism, and something that we often talk about is. Terrorism is 
ugly. It's something, you know, that it's very easy to kind of recognize the stigma of the term and say, you know, this is this, it's a horrible activity. But just about every conflict has some groups who use terrorism for their purposes. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. make sense to focus on that, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, when I think of civil war, I, I think of, you know, the American Civil War. I think of the Union North and, and the Southern Confederacy. That was relatively binary. But from what I'm hearing so far, the, this is really, really quite a more fractured uh, conflict. What has um, sustained this conflict? What has kept it going for nearly seven years now? Uh, seven years and much longer, because if you really want to think about the, the conflict, you don't think about just the period of violence that we're in at the moment, but you trace it back to the uh, the unification of North and South Yemen, which were two separate countries in the, in the 90s, and also the previous baggage of history and relationships between the different groups that comprise modern day Yemen. So, and this is one of the things I think we try and, and look at when we're exploring a conflict. Certainly it's a the approach of the, the the school and the Center for Conflict and Peace and Studies at the school is trying to understand the, the history of relationships between those in conflict and how they influence present-day decision-making. So you have a, a long history of difficult relations between groups who comprise Yemen. And I, I suppose I'd elaborate that by challenging actually part of the way in which you describe the conflict to begin with, because how we describe a conflict really determines the tools that are available for us to remedy it and also what a good outcome looks like. So you did preface your your explanation by saying the Iranian-backed Houthis, and I forget exactly mm. the other side, but it was something like the, 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 um, the Saudi-led coalition-backed um, South. And that falls into a way of looking at conflict, which is to see them in terms of proxy wars. So in which you have these big external backers who are manipulating local forces into interaction. I know that wasn't the intent, but that is the, the process that, that, that you can go down with that, with that thinking. Whereas what you have in a protracted social conflict, the, the terminology that um, Professor Huddleston was using, is you have a set of groups who do not trust the central state to treat them fairly. And hence there's co competition over control of that central state. And they don't trust the central state to treat them fairly because of the history that exists. So for example, you have the, the sense of abandonment amongst Southern Yemenis since the unification. You have the sense amongst the, the Shia and the, um, the Houthis in the North that they also didn't play a role post-unification in, the, in the, the tools of government. And then on top of that, you do have the international involvement in which these parties seek out support. They actively seek supporters who can help them achieve their goals. So with any kind of these conflicts, it's both driven internally and externally. Yeah, so I think, you know, in my little intro, I fell into the trap. And I'm using, you know, when I research the, these episodes, I'm using uh, a variety uh, of sources, but they, I guess, we try to make it a little more binary. We try to simplify it down. Yeah. Uh, and it's just not that simple. It's no, not that ahead. simple, but our international mediation processes, especially those led by the UN, tend to work in a binary format. So when you have a conflict that is non-binary, one of the reasons that it endures so long is that we're not set up to mediate or manage these non-binary conflicts, as you call them. I think that's very eloquent. 
So if you look at the mandate of the Office of the Special Envoy, so from the Secretary General mm -hmm. to Yemen, the mandate is around getting agreement to the government as defined by the, the national dialogue process in 2014-15. It doesn't bring in the southern dimension. So you've got a whole separate con conflict with the southerners that isn't even encompassed within the mandate. I would say too, the other the other good sort of shift in framing that, that Professor Wood just pointed out is it's really helpful to look at these conflicts as primarily something rooted in local agency, right? Rather than international actor, because it's not just- Absolutely. No international actor shows up to intervene without being invited there mm -hmm. by a party on the ground, right? So so it really, it's, it's, count, it's often counterproductive the way I'm sure a lot of the sources you came across sort of pitching it as primarily a proxy war, right? Like that's, that's the kind of um, quick and easy way to try to understand mm -hmm. something as complicated as the Yemeni conflict. But really, it's a, it's a layer upon layer of legitimacy crisis, which is something Professor Wood also pointed out, where uh, you have several groups, they don't trust each other, they don't trust the central state necessarily. The central state doesn't necessarily trust the local, the local agents that they have, or look, I mean, yes. political science here, but the, sort of the local, the, the, their, their arms that are in other parts of the country, right? So this sort of systemic distrust, that's part of it, that is, and on top of that is systemic legitimacy problems, right? So yeah. it just makes these conflicts highly localized, Right. And that's part of what makes them so difficult to sort of grapple with and see how you can sort of forge a path to peace. So you're talking about the lack of legitimacy, the kind of the weakness uh, of the central state and this 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 strong distrust of these ethnic groups, these uh, separatist movements. But I mean, nonetheless, I mean, these groups cannot fight without without weapons without support and without money. So they're drawing in this, this war capital, so to speak, from the international community. Am I right? Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, there's, there's definitely an interaction. And this comes back to the idea of looking for support. So you, you have a genuine conflict, which is localized. And, oh, and the point I was wanting to make actually is that it also adapts over time. One of the reasons these things endure is because systems of management build up over time that encourage their the duration they encourage the sustainability of the the conflict so one point is it's very evident is before um before 2015 there wasn't such an anti houthi narrative in the south there was a strong southern identity but there wasn't an anti um houthi narrative based around religion that really developed after mm -hmm. The, the Houthi advance on, on Aden in the south, in which you then had the southern leaders and media really push out hateful narrative, religious speech against the other, which then creates this cycle of identity-based conflict, which fuels what's already there. So when these conflicts endure, they, they shape the parties into a position which is more likely to encourage the, the extension of the conflict. So that, that's one thing I, I wanted to, to come back to on why these conflicts last so long. But in terms of the um, the international support, you definitely do have international support. You also have sophisticated 
non-state-based ways of gaining money and of securing weaponry and mm-hmm. enabling yourself to to prosecute the war. So these you know, the the chains of the black markets in small arms light weapons, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, is is very entrenched. It's for something that's very hard to to deal with. Having international partners makes that easier, and it's certainly the case that if we look at say the internationally recognized government and its aligned groups, they have received at the very least training support from the Saudi-led coalition, if not uh, in some cases support for payments of salaries of military staff and so on. So there is that definite support in the South. I think the, the, the Houthi armed groups are a little bit more autonomous because they have a more direct income stream, but they still need to buy their weapons from, 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 from some places. Um, and they, they definitely get some advisory support. That, that's definitely the case. But I just want to, to pull apart this idea that, again, that certainly Ansar Allah uh, or the Houthis are puppets of Iran. I don't think that's the case. And you often see that there is uh, a conflict between the two around the actions that, that are taken, um, either by the Houthis or by, by Iran. Um, so it's often the case that they'll be at loggerheads. And Iran only has so much ability to influence um, the decision making within Yemen. I, w- I would add that there's they have other ways besides reaching out to international actors for su- supporting their combat aims as well. Right. Uh, Professor Wood and I actually just wrote a report and a, a paper that explores this a little bit where the Houthis in the north, one of the things they'll do is. You know, there's economic activity happening in the north anyway, right? And they found ways to kind of exploit marketplace activities in a way that supports conflict as well, right? So it they don't it doesn't have to be uh, it doesn't have to be described as sort of an external income stream coming in that does exist. You know, another thing to think about too is aid, right? As you pointed out, there's a big humanitarian yeah. crisis in Yemen. There's a lot of international actors who want to put resources at the problem and, you know, help people who are in famine and have, you know, serious serious humanitarian crises. You have to deal with the politics on the ground, right? So if aid is not if aid's not deployed really carefully, and even if it is deployed carefully, it still can wind up getting sort of sucked up into the war economy and something that funds combat. Oh, okay. So you're saying that, I mean, with the best intentions, I'm sure, that some of these international aid organizations could be adding fuel to the fire. So it might be the case that foreign aid can be instrumentalized by conflict parties to help them achieve their, their, their goals. So that's often the case within conflict contexts, especially if you're because you're bringing a scarce resource into a place where resources are absent, and there is the ability of parties in such contexts to gain public legitimacy, to gain military upper hands through the control of such resources. So one of the challenges that the international community faces in Yemen is constantly negotiating their access in a manner which is likely to to lead to the least damage and is likely to have the biggest positive impact. And in my knowledge of the international aid community, they do try and negotiate that in good faith. 
they're not they won't always be able to there will be incidents in which aid is misappropriated is used by the parties to further their own agendas but then you're faced with the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world so you need to respond to it so it's it's one of these challenges that's on the one hand yeah and i think actually that's the least problematic part mm -hmm. The most problematic part is the it way sounds that sounds pretty problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, but it's it's, it's and it's where the, the attention is. So, international aid organisations and the international community as a whole focus their political effort with conflict parties on ensuring access, on reaching the beneficiaries, and on protecting the humanitarian space. That's important. However, in a protracted conflict, it's not the only game in town because what happens in a protracted conflict is. One of the reasons it protracts is the lack of trust in central authorities, the lack of the ability of central authorities to deliver critical services. If over a period of time you're not doing the key development work that's required to enhance those services, then you're not dealing with one of the critical drivers of violence. And humanitarian aid is just that. It's delivered by international organisations separate from state institutions in order to protect the humanitarian space. And you need that humanitarian space. But what you also need is for aid to be delivered in a way that reinforces state authorities, their legitimacy and their ability to deliver for the populace. And that's where there's a difficult conundrum, because the longer you have a contract, a conflict, the longer it's humanitarian in nature, the more it undermines state capacity and the more there's a reliance on humanitarian aid. And that is part of the conflict cycle as well. So one of the challenges that we have in protracted conflicts is trying to somehow deal with these two competing uh, requirements to deal with the humanitarian need and ensure access and also to build functioning states that deal with the challenges of people living in them. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a really uphill battle. I mean, the, the images and the, I talked about some of the statistics in the beginning, like uh, eight million at risk of famine and the images that are coming out of, of Yemen are, are truly uh, a little horrific and, and obviously you can see why uh, the international community would want to respond but they have to do so in a smart way and sometimes they only have so much control over it. Yeah I think that that's right but again we're, we're, we're in a learning mode here. I, it's It sounds like a long time but it's not so long ago that the modalities of these international conflicts during the, the Cold War were completely different. We're having to learn how to deal with these new conflict environments and to, which last a long time and how to then manage these these difficult dynamics around humanitarianism and development. Mm -hmm. It's what in, um, in international development we're starting to call the nexus. So this came out of the, um, the UN Secretary General's statement on the new way of working, which basically requires or is an attempt to require the international community to work as one across the nexus of humanitarian actors, development actors and peace actors, because you have three different communities and ways of working. So it's trying to embed them into the, the same process, the same way of working. And it's a struggle because they have different cultures and way of working and that does manifest mm -hmm. in a place like Yemen. And having talked more about how the international community has responded to the crisis, I want to talk for a bit about how Yemeni households or businesses or, or families, how have they responded to this prolonged crisis? So this is something we we have studied a lot in Yemen. Um, we 
ran some survey. Uh, we ran <laughs> we ran a survey of <laughs> several hundred households um, in 2019. We have another survey across the country underway right now, and we've been asking asking a lot of questions about how people are coping uh, with conflict. And we find some of the probably the starkest things, you know, are not total surprises, right? Yemenis spend four times as much on food as they do on any other thing, um, including rent, including transportation, including uh, several other things, right? Um, so the the food, the, the sort of food scarcity problem that is part of the humanitarian crisis, right? It's completely battering you know, the middle class and, and sort of all sects of, of Yemen as well, right? A lot of a lot of resources go to just sort of keeping food on the table. Um, people have sold off a lot of possessions. Uh, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's a significant portion of Yemeni households have sold vehicles, sold family heirlooms, sold their jewelry, right? Just to keep, just to pay for food and water. That was the question we asked about. So it's really it's a it's a desperate situation on the ground. It, it's requiring a lot of you know a lot of liquidation of assets um, at the household level. But at the same time, you've had this kind of um, what you might call like a spontaneous marketplace form in different parts of the country, where might not be the best way to put it, but in a sense, protracted conflict is there's there's opportunities that come up there as well, and people have figured out okay in this space. If I start a business, run it this way, if I get a source, for example, for gasoline or cooking gas and I sell it and I sell it in this way, right, I can I can keep keep my family going. Right. So you've had a lot of people doing this and you've sort of had this whole marketplace kind of spring up around the country. Um, that's not it's not that it's not regulated. It's not regulated by the international internationally recognized government, Yemenis know that there still must be laws, right? They just don't necessarily know what they are. They don't necessarily know who to expect is, go is going to sort of uh, impose regulations. There's just a lot of sort of lack of clarity that they have there. But these markets aren't serving a purpose. They're keeping, they're keeping materials moving, right? They're keeping food and water and Health, you know, health supplies, medical supplies moving, right? So they're, they're, they are helpful, right? And the reason I say that is there's always a temptation to kind of think of conflict economies as sort of, you know, oh, they're just, you know, when you read about uh, Afghanistan, it's, you know, people just want to talk about opium um, production and how that's part of, part of the economy, right? So they think of like mm -hmm. black markets and illicit products, right? But that's not really what we're talking about. We're just talking about an economy that um, follows a lot of the, the sort of way, the rules that, or, or a lot of the, the norms that you see in, in any country, right? But just it's the regulatory structure that's sort of unclear and confusing, right? So something that, that Professor Wood and I have sort of been arguing is that, look, international actors who want to, you know, uh, have a productive input into peace processes in Yemen should study these, these economies and recognize what they are accomplishing. Recognize too, where they're providing opportunities for conflict actors who want to perpetuate conflict, right? But recognize that they're serving the needs of a lot of Yemeni households 
and make sure that you are somewhat surgical in how you intervene in these marketplaces, mm-hmm. that you don't cut off functioning supply chains. You don't cut off you know, currency exchange markets that are serving Yemeni households who are trying to survive. If there was to be peace soon, uh, would these economies be folded back into a, a peaceful economy or would there be some sort of friction there? If history is any guide to the future, there will certainly be friction, right? There's okay. there's effectively two currencies circulating in Yemen now. Um, and the longer the longer you have two banks issuing two currencies and people sort of adapting to that situation, the more difficult it will be to take that back apart and sort of assert, hey, we are one country, we're using one currency. Um, The same is true for, for example, this isn't something that we researched ourselves, but you may have you may have come across this information. Right. So the the part of the country that's controlled by the by the Houthis was cut off from the national electricity grid. Right. So there has been some entrepreneurs who have started importing and selling solar panels as a way to serve their families. Right. And. They now they now stand to lose something if if the electricity grid is reconnected and you know the electricity supply becomes it goes back to how it used to be right mm-hmm. now that's not to say that that actors like that are going to try to you know politically influence to keep conflict going it's just to say that as conflict goes on and on right and people adjust their activities to conflict when you start to move towards a, a peaceful economy, right, you have to you have to see who has something to lose by changing by changing the way things work again. I, th- I think tan- tangentially, yes, this idea of the the interaction between the conflict and economy is is quite a complex one, and um, it's something again that those who have a responsibility to promote peaceful resolution are less in tune with. So uh, Chatham House did a quite good study across the different um, different mediation processes, UN-led mediation processes across the Middle East to try and understand how much economic incentives were factored into the political dialogue process. And the in a snapshot, the outcome was they're not. So UN teams are, are generally, mediation teams are generally a little bit allergic to considering the economic dimension falls outside their expertise and it doesn't fit this this notion that they have around how a political conflict is resolved. Now, the the challenge is, however, that within uh, a protracted conflict, because of the the moves that are made by the parties to develop the legitimacy, that does include controlling and regulating the economic space. And that creates then incentives for that economic space to be continued to be regulated the way it is which then reduces the incentives that might exist for a peaceful solution. So to come back to our, our research, for example, we asked kind of Yemenis in both um, de facto authority controlled areas, so the Houthi controlled areas and in internationally recognized government controlled areas, uh, what needs to come first? Will the economy grow and, and strengthen once there's peace? Or do you need to remove the interest that exists in the economy at the moment for there to be peace. Mm. So the basic question is what comes first, chicken and egg? Do we improve the economy and peace improves or vice versa? 
in mm -hmm. internationally recognized government areas where there's less entrenchment in control of the economy. The response was very much that once we have peace, then we'll see the economy um, flourish. Yeah. In, in de facto authority areas where there's greater control over economic actions by the parallel authorities, the, the feeling was only once we have removed those economic interests will we be likely to see a sustainable peace. So it's really at the heart of it. I mean, of course, it makes sense that people are going to adapt to their situation. They're not just going to sit there and starve. Yeah. They're going to try and adapt in creative ways. And sometimes those adaptations cause more problems, uh, but they also alleviate suffering. So it's it's really interesting uh, yeah, subject. Yeah. But definitely. And I think this is where the research we're doing is is a bit different. I'm not going to say groundbreaking because nothing really is groundbreaking anymore, but it is a bit different. <laughs> There is a strong focus when you look at, say, a war economy around the mobilization of resources within a conflict to enable fighting. And that's something that's taken very much from interstate war, but is applied to intrastate war now. You then have the, the work that was done um, to really identify how, how communities cope and survive within these, these conflicts, how they do so economically. And then what we're adding to that is the element of how, um, how the economy reinforces the legitimacy of the parties and is used to reinforce the legitimacy of the parties. That's what we're interested in very much so, mm. that, that interaction between the economy and legitimacy. And if you don't know that, then yeah. it's very hard to navigate a way out of, of conflict. I just want to gear lead the discussion towards one last topic, and that is um, peace. How can we build peace? And we've talked about this a bit already, but mm. where have peace efforts gone wrong in the past and, and how can we begin to over, overcome some of these obstacles? Uh, Professor Huddleston, you want to start? Uh, I actually, I think I'd rather hear Professor Wood. <laughs> Professor Wood start. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, and partly that's because I mean one of the big complaints I get within my classes is I present a lot of the failures and a lot of, a lot of the successes um, because we are learning at the moment how to work in protracted social conflict. Honestly, we have had very few successes, very few sustainable successes. Um, I think I would I would point to, to three things. Three. I'm not going to talk about failures and as such, but I'll talk. I'll point to three areas where we need to see a change. One is around the mandate and skills of UN missions. So mandates treat the conflicts as as mostly um, two party. And they mostly within them have already an idea of the outcome. So they're usually tailored towards the benefit of one or other parties. And I think, and that's because these mandates are agreed by the UN Security Council and so on. I think there is a need to generally give mediators the ability to mediate with a more enabling mandate. And one in which allows for the complexity of conflicts because the UN mandate within, within Yemen should encompass the southern separatist movements. It should encompass the different governorates and how they're going to come mm -hmm. together. So you need an enabling mandate. That would be the first thing. Secondly is what we call within the aid world conflict sensitivity. So it is understanding the impact that aid has on conflict dynamics and, and ch adapting your aid accordingly. So what we do know is that over a long period of time, humanitarian aid does start to degrade state infrastructures 
and starts to reinforce the very humanitarian need that you're trying to overcome. So we need to find a way of, of doing development in humanitarian space. And, and the reason, I might not have communicated this properly before, Eric, but just to, to describe why that's important, because if you're a humanitarian agency, you've got to be seen to be nonpartisan, which means that you cannot work directly with a government agency. If you're working on development, development programs are built in partnership with recognized government agencies. So if you start to work in partnership with a government agency, you are de facto stating that's the legitimate authority. Mm -hmm. So this is the, the big kind of challenge that we have there. And, and thirdly, it's more nuanced policymaking. So this is, uh, this is a, I think, a, a, a good example from for the US context and the new administration. So within Yemen, um, the, pro the previous administration before it left government did uh, announce the intent to designate the, the Ansar Allah, the Houthis, as a foreign terrorist organization. The rationale for this designation were outlined in terms of, of violent actions, but it was a very loose um, designation. It was in fact quite unique in terms of the kind of history of such designations in terms of being very broadly interpretable. So it could have actually set a precedent. Now, the, irrespective of whether you agree with that or not, but the mm -hmm. impact of that designation would have been fundamentally divisive and would have led to a humanitarian catastrophe, really, because what happens at the moment is that food imports into Yemen are really dependent upon letters of credit and upon international financing through banks. Bank risk threshold on Yemen is already very hard. There are just so many layers, so many complexities, so many costs. This would have even increased that even further. So what you were likely to have seen in three months time was an impact on the, the, the transfer of basic foodstuffs into Yemen. And that would have potentially led to a, a new famine. So there was, there was this potential humanitarian impact. The new administration came in and they revoked the designation. Sounds like a good idea, but whether you agree with the designation or not, the way you revoke it is also important. And it was it was mishandled slightly because what happened is that the revocation itself has now in the political dynamic has really empowered the de facto authorities versus mm -hmm. the internationally recognized government. It's done so in a number of ways. The internationally recognized government was dependent on the revocation to to enable it to get more funding uh, for its uh, for its state services, in order to sign contracts it couldn't sign before, in order to put pressure on businesses and agencies to move to the south. So it's been it's been a hit against their strategy. With it's also seemed to be the case that for the de facto authorities that they get let off irrespective of their behaviour and their bad behaviour. So it seems to have empowered them. And so you had this ongoing then social media narrative since then in the south of Yemen, which has said the international community and aid agencies are enabling terrorism in the north. With some great, very graphic pictures of the leaders of um, Ansar Allah being held up on a bloody UN hand, for example. So it really influences how um, the parties are treating each other and how they're thinking. Because what then happened is that directly after the revocation, 
there was a, an advance by the forces associated with de facto authorities in Marib, which is one of the main oil producing areas. And in the south, they said, look, your, this is because of your revocation. They are enacting a new wave of violence because of your revocation. Now, it probably wasn't the case because it takes a long time to plan these, these military advances, but that's the way the narrative unfolds. So even if you're going to revoke something because it's going to have a humanitarian impact, you need to do it the right way. That's the challenge. From that, uh, I'm getting, you said three main things. Uh, you need to include more of the parties, as we talked about in the beginning. Uh, there's more groups than just two. Uh, we need to be more careful with our international aid, uh, and we need to be a little more nuanced with our policy, or at least the West needs to be a little more nuanced with its policy making uh, in regards to Yemen. Uh, we're running out of time, but Professor Huddleston, you want to have some last comments? Yeah, I was just going to really it works well because I was going to circle back to the original sort of point we talked about, which is how dynamic, how complex these conflicts are. So to, you know, a, a conclusion from what Professor Wood just said is maybe it would have been better if there was never a terrorist designation to begin with. Right. It, it, it was counterproductive to apply it for the reasons of aid delivery and humanitarian crisis in the north and now the way it's been revoked has also been counterproductive for the sort of propaganda reasons um, that that professor wood just pointed out right and recall that one of the sort of dimensions of conflict here is that there is a group called the southern transitional council who wants to split off who wants the country to become two countries right so for there to be uh mismanagement by international actors uh, towards both the Houthis and the internationally recognized government, that provides opportunity for groups like the Southern Transitional Council, right? So it's there's just there's a lot of ways to misstep for the international community to come in. And this is an example of how you can, you know, with with some sloppy policy, empower a sort another actor, another conflict actor, that is looking for opportunities to empower itself, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to, you really have to have an eye on all of these dynamics at the same time. Okay, well, if there's any one thing I'm gonna take away uh, from this discussion is that it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this has been a, a truly fascinating discussion. Professor Wood, uh, <laughs> Professor Huddleston, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Beth Wood. That is all for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This episode couldn't have been made without executive producer Jared Dang, assistant producers Jasmine and Joaquin, technical producer Brittany Serga, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 WSOU. I'm your host, Eric Bunce. Until next time, thank you.